All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless. and Without your light, our search is in vain. Invigorate our study of your holy word, that by due diligence and right discernment, we may establish ourselves and others in your holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I think um, we will... Hey, Lee, come on down. You get... You get wherever you, yeah, wherever you want. If you don't want your back to me. Yes, you're assigned wherever you, wherever you park. Um, we're going we're gonna to go through the, uh, the service, kind of where we were last night. Hey, John. I don't have a handout today, so you're not missing anything there, but I do want you to have a Bible and a hymnal. If you guys will help me remember next time. Bibles and hymnals back over there and then grab them and come in. Otherwise, I have to keep walking back and forth. And then I get too many steps on my Fitbit. People get the wrong idea that I'm exercising. I don't know, the whole world collapses. Today, um, I want to talk about truth. Ah, the word Lutheranism and other denominations. Very good. Thank you, Beth. Open your hymnals to... 300 and, or two, sorry, 200 and, give you a false alarm there. Divine service, well, let's jump into one. 170, 150, <laughs> 151, 151, divine service one. Cool. I remember last time I was jumping around between divine services. and So I'm going to talk generally about some worship stuff for you guys, but First, regarding the first two classes, if, you, if you're interested in, in um, boring yourself with some of those, these classes are, are posted to the church's website. So Bible studies, sermons, and uh, the new member class, like we post them to the church website, which you can subscribe to. The, if you go to the resources page, there's audio and video, and it pulls up all the latest stuff. You can actually search in there for particular things, but then the most latest is on there, the most latest uploaded. So I did it all last night, Beth, and I just saw like all my sermons, Bible studies, is stacked. What I like to do every now and then is because since the latest gets top precedence, I can push all the other pastors down in priority. So I just, I just post all my stuff. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, the first two weeks on uh, baptism and God's word and this class in general, like not even this class, but like the new member, right? What we're confessing when we go into a church. Last week on the name of God, the significance of God's name, especially as, it, as it's given to us in holy baptism, and today with God's word. Um, so, and I've been living in this open, so I remember to come back to it, but I promised to talk to you guys about this room. So this is our youth room. Welcome. And uh, before, the year before I came in 2015, was my first year, August of 15. So like literally the spring before they broke ground on, no, they finished this project. So um, it was this built, this room and the youth, um, sorry, the youth room, the music room next to it, the hallway that connects it to the sanctuary, and then like a series of offices and that bathroom, and then also the bathroom around the corner. So this entire wing, basically when you pass the, come out of the narthex and hang a right, there's a nursery on your left, and that used to be an exit to the outer world. <laughs> and now it's a whole hallway, right? And um, 
So the guy who designed this, named Jonathan Fisk, he's a very skilled theologian. You can see his stuff on YouTube. He's actually a YouTube theologian, you could say, and an author. You can find some of his stuff. Um, he was the youth guy here before me, and he designed this room for his vision of youth ministry. He and I, we agree on everything except for our, our personalities are night and day different. We're very, very different. So this room was like black. Like the ceiling was the same color as the walls. And there are pictures of like very gory Jesus. Like we're talking, and, and there are, if you're a 16-year-old boy, you're comfortable here. But for everybody else, there's like a sheep with like the jugular and blood was coming out of it. Well, there, it was all, it was, it was meant to be a little bit jarring and it was all toward the crucifixion. So you had like the actual, all the, all the, all the, uh, you had the actual crucifix of Jesus. You had like the, all the weapons used to like flog him. You had like nails and hammer, like all these kind of things around the room, all kind of pointing toward the crucifixion. To just be reminded of the significance of the crucifixion, but it was kind of a little bit goth heavy. <laughs> and that corner had like four, four TVs and Xboxes and he was a gamer. And the idea was the kids would get out of school and if they go to school here or if they're, if they're living in the community and, they, they, and they're part of the church, they come in this room and they have all these like plug-ins for like, I, like computers and stuff. Which how many eighth graders you know are like, I need a plug-in for my computer, like zero. <laughs> but they, they would come here and plug in and grab a you know, Coke, play video games. And, um, and that was the idea, that was the vision. They would finish school, come over here, work on homework, goof around and build a community. It was a good, fine idea. Then he took a call though. He got a call like immediately. And then I came in and just the, the idea didn't materialize. So during COVID, the room got a fresh paint, a coat of paint, white, big cross on the wall there. I still want a crucifix. I mean, it's nice to be in your face about the crucifix. We can, we can talk more about the crucifix. But um, well, we had these cool track lights, really trendy. But for a youth room, I mean, like if you've grown up in the Christian faith, you're like, you're used to like a hand-me-down couch with coffee stains on it and a back closet. <laughs> The smell, though, is we're getting, we're getting, yeah, <laughs> trying to make it feel. I think so, before Karen, after Karen. <laughs> well, when I, when I got here, um, I, I went out and got the pool table and the, sorry, pool table and the foosball table because I didn't know how to turn on the Xbox. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah. So these are like, you can just go with ping pong and pool, right? Um, all right. So when it comes to God's word, which we're going to be talking about today, obviously, the word of God forms the basis for everything we know about God, right? So as Christians, we're able to say, all right, what makes us a Christian? Well, uh, I, believe in, I believe in Jesus, I mean, God the Father Almighty, his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. How do you know about that stuff? We heard about it primarily through God's word, right? And it's been passed down to you, maybe through your parents, but they're ultimately getting it from the word too. So the word is certainly central. And there's only one Bible, I mean... Yeah, there's different translations of the Bible, and, um, and we can talk more about the different translations, but generally speaking, it's saying the same idea. And um, so how is it that on your way here today, you drove past so many different churches? And many of you are coming from other church bodies. So how do we say, okay, we have the same book that, it, that forms the basis for our faith, and, yet, and then we end up in all these different directions, Right? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, some of the differences amongst 
the church bodies and how, I mean, really the whole class is why Luther, how, how Lutheranism is um, confessed a little bit differently. But this, the question I want to address today is more like how we ended up here. Maybe that's a fair way to look at it. The liturgical excuse for talking about this is if you look at your 151, what, what forms the, like, the, the divine service, our worship together, when we get together for corporate worship, we begin in the Lord's name that you put upon us, and we can, right away we confess our sins. But everything that we're doing, though, in the service, if you'll notice, all the little fine, like, three-point font Bible verses there in the, in the margins— for everything that we're doing is ultimately, here's the rationale for where it's in the scriptures. So we're not, we're, not, we're not trying to do anything that the Lord hasn't told us to do, or we're not confessing anything that he hasn't told us to confess. So we're confessing our sins to the Lord. And then right away, turn to page 152, we, we begin one of the two main services. So you have like the family tree of the divine service. You've got, so the divine service, It's divine because it's God's, and it's him serving us. So right away, the name of what we're doing flips the posture. So we come to receive, to be Mary instead of Martha. If you remember that, that picture of, of Mary being the one who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, delighting in his gifts, and Martha's trying to do, 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 and she ends up developing animosity against Mary. So... Uh, here we're coming to the Lord's, and, and, and Jesus commends Mary for choosing the better part, right? So we're coming here to be served by our Lord through word and sacrament. And last week, you remember, I talked about how the cross is where, is where God won salvation. Remember, I did that whole, salvation is won on the cross, but it's not, what? Do you remember the word? Delivered. Delivered. So here we are, 2,000 years approximately later. It's about 32 uh, of course, we're happy. And the salvation that was won on the cross is delivered to us today through word and his sacraments, which is simply physical stuff that he attached his word to, that he said in his word to do these things. And I promise by through these things, I'm delivering to you my cross. So baptism, how he says, baptism saves you. I'm baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism washes away all my sins. So baptism is actually doing the cross thing to me 2,000 years later. The Lord's Supper, take eat, take drink for the forgiveness of sins. This is my body, this is my blood. Uh, the absolution, which we, at the, right away, um, Jesus sends out his disciples to forgive sins. So word and sacraments. So that's really what forms the the delivery of the goods that have been won on the cross form the content of the divine service. So we walk in the door. He calls us to his name. We confess our sins. Then he forgives our sins. We'll, we'll come back to that in a later class. And then we have these two main chapters. Word and Sacrament, specifically the Lord's Supper. So the first half of the service, this is all, this is like the first like 10 seconds, depending on how long the opening hymn is. The opening hymn drags on. 
But then the service of the word is all the stuff leading up to the reading of God's word and the, and the gospel reading. And then the sermon itself is unfolding those readings. So it's being spoken from the pulpit is to be based upon solely the word of God that's prescribed for that day. I'll come back to that in a second. And then after the sermon, there's a, there's a break. Some churches actually, and this would be my preference, I think, until um, I try it on the pants, and if they didn't fit, then maybe I'd return it. But I think, where I like, there's a break here, there's the offering. There's like a reverent break in the service. So after the sermon, there's a, there's a break. We have like a, we read like a communion statement. We have, a, we have the prayers. And then we set the table. And then we continue with, the Lord's Supper, the second half of the, of the divine service, really the last 20 minutes is all, where we have the preface to Holy Communion, we receive the sacrament, and then we're on our way. But those are two, two basic, the two key basic pieces are the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. So the word being kind of central to what we're about, we lead into it there on page 152 as we're leading, we, we, we start off with the, the words on our lips of blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, when Jesus, I, so I, I'm sorry, I can't teach and sit down at the same time. It's like, I have to stand, I gotta move. Uh, now, now, I already feel better. <laughs> so Jesus is in this town, he's walking by. So let me, let me start with, with the blind dude. Here's, here he is on the side of the road. Obviously he can't see because he's blind. <laughs> so if you can't see, then his, his hearing is obviously fine-tuned. And so he's standing on the side of the road in and out of Jerusalem, and so people are coming from all over the place, and he's hearing stories of people coming as they're coming in, and he's, he's picking up on these, on these stories about this guy who's out there healing people, even healing blind people. So, of course, this is going to catch his attention. But he can't do anything. He's totally dependent upon the generosity of others. He's there begging. He can't, no one's helping him, which is why he's there on the side of the road begging. So then he hears a crowd coming, and you can hear this growing. He said, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And he's drawing near, and it's getting louder and louder. And here he is getting real excited, and he starts crying out, Jesus, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lord, and he keeps saying it over and over again. And this is the most moving thing. So then the crowd gets really, really, really loud. They're right on top of him. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. And then he, the crowd keeps moving. Now it's getting quieter. Remember this crescendo of like, Getting crowds drawing near. Jesus is right here. This is it. This is my chance. I'm blind. I don't want to be blind anymore. Help me, Jesus. And then the crowd starts to dissipate. Gone. And just this total despair. And I think in that moment, he's just really crying out. And you can just imagine. He can't see. He's like flailing around, screaming, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. I can't do anything. You're my only hope. I need you. And at that, Jesus stops. And the scriptures are quite clear on this. He stops walking. Boom. He turns around and he walks straight up to the guy and heals him. And the disciples are trying to like shut him up and push him out of the way. So we are, we are joining our lips to that prayer of blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road as Jesus is coming by. And we are, we've just recognized right off the bat our sinful condition. Our starting point is our brokenness our blindness. In fact, if we don't have the Ten Commandments, we don't even know about our sin. He has to tell us our problem. 
So we're too blind to even realize our problem, obviously too blind to realize our solution. And then once we see our problem, we realize how bad it is. And the, and the more we look at it, we realize it's worse. And that's just our sin problem, not to mention the, the death and despair and loneliness that the, this world can wreak, wreak havoc on us. So there, that's, our, that's our prayer, Lord have mercy. And so that's the prayer that we pray there, what's called the Kyrie on 152. The Kyrie for, is Greek for Lord, so Lord have mercy. Uh, and then, if you flip the page another, we have the, the hymn of praise on 154, where we actually join our lips to the angels on Christmas Eve. So the, um, really during the season of Advent, we omit this to draw special attention to it once Christmas comes. But it's this glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, or, and peace to his people on earth. And every liturgy has it a little bit differently. But the idea is this... God's glory doesn't stay up in the heavens, but it comes down at the incarnation of Jesus among us. And now it's coming down to us in this, as his word is spoken. He's put his name here. He's having his word spoken here, and he's here. So this glory isn't far off in the, in the highest heavens. It's now his peace is coming down to us on earth. Remember, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the hearing of God's word, Jesus is making himself in a real way present for us. It's kind of a weird thing because you'll be hearing the Bible read about something else, and yet it's through this word that Jesus is manifesting his presence. So then you flip to 156. The, the salutation and collect of the day, this response, this Christian response of the Lord be with you and, and also with you or in with thy spirit. Um, just a, and with thy spirit kind of acknowledges the office, the, off, the pastoral office that the, that the pastor is standing in. Then we have the point for today is these readings, Old Testament, Psalm or gradual, epistle, and then Alleluia verse. Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then the gospel lesson. Now those three readings form what's called a pericope, We'll call them the, start with this. This is your best friend because it protects you from me. So if I want to preach on, obviously, money every week, we're going to have a 47-week um, sermon theme on stewardship. You know, when you hear that, you oh, we get it. <laughs> but obviously, any kind, of, any kind of whim the pastor might be going through, and also it protects me from you. Because you're like, hey, Pastor, I really think you should be preaching more about X, Y, and Z. The thing is, what's really important to John one week is may or may not be so important to everybody else. So what the, what the church and its wisdom has put together what's called the lectionary that kind of lays out for us the full wisdom of God, that we call it the full counsel of God, so not the full Bible, but the main central teachings of the scriptures that we would hear it over the course of the year and in cycles. So that's what's, if you've ever wondered why, like what's, what's, why are we preaching on these certain themes at certain times? Because every church kind of does it different. Um, a lot of like the Catholics would have the lectionary, Eastern Orthodox have the lectionary, uh, Presbyterians typically have the lectionary. 
A lot of mainline Protestant church retains some sense of electionary, but it's becoming increasingly popular just to have sermon series. And that's, the, that's where, that's not bad. It's certainly, there's nothing, there's nothing in the Bible that says you had to do this. The risk of the sermon series is that it does tempt the pastor to jump on his hobby horse because that's obviously really important to him. Um, but now I have to, like this coming Sunday's gospel lesson is, <laughs> You put yourself in my shoes. Here's what you get to preach on. And I just preached on the same idea like two weeks ago. And I'm preaching. Uh, where does it start? Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned around and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and mother and brothers, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I love that. I love that passage. You got to hate everybody. Now, obviously, we'll be unfolding that in the sermon, but like I, if, I, if I could choose, I'd rather like, you know, choose on, come, come to me, all you here, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's easy to unfold. This takes a little bit more work and application, and it's a, kind of an unpopular teaching. Jesus, the cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, like, Jesus does say, if you're going to be a Christian, you're renouncing everything else. And then he gives it back to you as a gift, and he's standing like in between you and everybody else. So we're given to understand this world in a totally different way. But we, are, we do have to let go of it. And that's, we don't want to do that. We're like Gollum in the, in the ring, right? Uh, so anyway, so the lectionary is, is going through in two uh, main themes. One, the life of Jesus. So we're covering his, like leading up to his birth and then his birth and then his, his epiphany, that is his being manifest as the Savior and then the march toward his death and Lent and then Easter with his death and resurrection. That kind of like is the, and then the, those 40 days that he was on the earth during the Easter season. So that, that covers basically December 1, approximately, the Sunday after Thanksgiving through um, usually mid-May. Somewhere in that. That's like the, the, the life of Jesus. And you have some teachings of Jesus popped in there too, but it's mostly driven by his, his life. Then in the summer, which is called the season of the church, so May 15th through the middle of May up to uh, the end of November, we have this season of the church where we get a lot of teachings of Jesus. Um, and also we see the church spreading. We hear readings from Acts and so forth. But that's this general cycle. So there are themes. And this year... We're, we're, the year that we're on is the, the year that's driven by Luke. So all the gospel readings keep working through Luke. So last, last time, yes, Sunday when I preached the beginning of Luke 14, this coming Sunday, it's the middle of Luke 14. We omitted a few verses, and I think we jump like the, week, the next week to Luke 15, somewhere in there. So you're, but you're still, you're floating on the same gospel for that whole year. And then the next year, we flip over to year B, which is the Mark year. And a little bit of John is thrown in there as well because Mark's a little bit shorter and John's a little bit obscure. <laughs> and then the third, uh, sorry, so if that first year is Matthew, Luke A, or sorry, year A is Matthew, which will be next year. The year after that is Mark and John. And then this year is C, the C year for Luke. So what I just said to you is quite confusing because I messed it up like three times. <laughs> so let me start over. We're in year C, which is Luke. After C, A, B, C repeats again to A. A is Matthew, and then B is Mark and John. 
So you'll, in case you're ever wondering, like, where are these readings coming from? Why, why is pastor preaching on these things? Or, so that's the idea. And then from, what's that? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, good point. You can flip over to um, page um, Roman numeral uh, 28. No, I'd be like 18, XV111. I need stronger glasses. So this is how you know if your pastor is cheating. You can be like, hey, what he... I don't think he's preaching on the right text. So you see on the top of 20, uh, 15, 16, 18, it says three-year lectionary series C. And so as you've got all the different Sundays of the church here with all the readings, one Old Testament epistle and gospel. You flip back to your left and see your B and also your A. And then if you flip to the right of, um, of page 18, also known as Roman numeral 20, you'll see the one-year lectionary which some churches do, and we'll, we'll probably uh, stick our foot in the one-year lectionary in the next year or so for a couple years. The, the logic behind the one-year lectionary is it's this, this same lectionary every single year. So you can see the, I mean, if you, most of you probably never even noticed this. But the idea would be, if you grew up in a, in a church that has the one-year lectionary, you're hearing the same readings every single, every single year. And so over the course of your life, you're, you're associating particular times of the church here with specific readings of Jesus, and, you, and they become quite familiar to you. The one your lectionary assumed that people were actually reading their Bible at home. So that Sunday morning's job is not to expose you to the full scriptures. Sunday morning is just trying to hit these main teachings. That was the one your lectionary. And then Vatican II rolled around when they made a lot of changes in the church. And in Vatican II, that's one of the church councils in the 1960s, 65, 66. Um, they made this the adjustment to the lectionary in addition to some other liturgical changes in the Roman Catholic Church. And most of the other American Protestant churches followed suit. They were like, we're, our people aren't really getting most of the Bible because they're not reading their Bible at home. And so we need to expose them to more readings. And so we'll have more, we'll have this three-year lectionary. And now we, over the course of three years, you work through the readings. Either way, it's like you need to be writing, reading your Bible at home. I think the Catholic, the Catholic move was an understandable one, but, um, but I, think it, I think it takes away more potentially. It exposes you to more texts, but I think the one-year lectionary has more value in the, in the repetitive, repetitive nature of it. Now, here's the thing. The gospel lesson of the day is the, is the theme, it carries the theme, the kernel, the central kernel, all the hymns of the day, why those readings are all picked to, in that time of the church year are all based upon the gospel readings theme. So, uh, for example, in a, in a, in a few weeks, uh, months, I should say, at the end of November, we get to the fun end of the, the end time stuff, the sheep and the goats, the judgment, the scary like return of Christ, judgment type stuff, which is not scary for those who are in Christ. But when you're reading it, you're like, this is a scary thing for those who are not in Christ. Um, so the, that we're having that at the end of the church year because we're about to start a new church year with Advent. And so the end of the church year is also kind of symbolic for the end of the church age when Christ comes back. So when we get to the end of the season of Pentecost, the end of the church year, we're actually going to hear three or four weeks in a row of judgment themes. So 
depending on how you want to affect your friends and neighbors, invite them on those four weeks. But then obviously you get to Christmas, you have the classic like birth of Jesus, um, driving the theme in, uh, in, the, in, in the Christmas season. Advent is John the Baptist, the, the preparing the way for the Lord there, right? So that, that's the gospel reading that's driving the theme. So that's where the readings come from. And we want to have the, the readings read every, every Sunday. It's like the main thing, because what's nice from the pastor, like, in fact, the, my preaching professor at, at seminary said, you want to quote as much of the Bible as you can in your sermon, because it's better than you are. <laughs> so, so you, like, the idea of the preached word is to take, well, here, here's the definition, actually, if I can remember it. A Lutheran sermon is a 20-minute plus or minus proclamation of law and gospel within a liturgical context. And he made us say it so many times, it kind of like riding a bike. So the idea would be that the sermon's job is to simply take the, the prescribed lectionary readings of the day and deliver it to my people in this context. So how, why is it relevant to today? You know, obviously, there's always going to be application for sinners in our context today because they need to know their sin and they need to know their Savior today and, and trying to make it accessible and ap- applicable for them. That's always the goal. We don't always achieve it, which is why the readings are read. <laughs> and then as soon as we, like, we also quickly followed up with the creed, so we're confessing the, the history of the church's faith as well. See, this is why it was cold when I got in here because now it's loud. This room, I tell you. It's cool though. Um, so there's, there's kind of the lectionary. Any questions? That was really kind of like a why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. Why the readings? Many of you might have already known that, but in case you're wondering where it came from or why, yes, ma'am. Who's choosing the lectionary? You mentioned Vatican, but then or is it just Synod? Well, so no. So the Synod actually. I mean, there was there were some slight adjustments made within the within the scope of the three-year lectionary, like. There's some options, like which readings are going to be chosen during the summer, the long summer season readings from Luke. There's some options that are made. In our master book that no one ever sees, it actually will say like for, well, like for example, in three or four weeks, I'm preaching again. Kenner Sweat just texted me earlier. He said, which epistle lesson do you want? Because there's two different epistle readings. Why? Well, to, to give more options so that the, the, historic, the original historic might have had this one epistle lesson, but the wisdom of the church has also said this might be a decent one to read too. So we kind of choose between some options. We don't, we don't always have options. And it's usually the options are in the to extending or shortening of one lesson. So like you'll have, if you're looking at your like um, a gospel lesson on a given Sunday could be quite long where we, one option A might have been to cut half of it out, so we just need to decide do we want to have more readings. Doesn't answer your question though. The, so the, the lectionary, um, ah, man, I don't know the, the specific year on this. We know that in the early church when the, disciple, when the disciples were meeting together to receive the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, prayers, and, and rejoicing and fellowship and the teaching of the apostles, they were hearing God's word. That's what that was what they were doing in the synagogue in the Jewish church, and that's just what they continued to do. The concept of the lectionary was already in place in the synagogues. Now, what determined that 
probably just a tradition of the day. As they're working through the Torah, right? They're hearing the, primarily the Pentateuch, the first five books, but probably working through all of the scriptures. Because we know, like, for example, Jesus stands up and reads from Isaiah. So why, though, or who picked that, I, I, I don't know um, specifically. But then as we get into the New Testament church, they started getting to that rhythm. If, if, Matt, put yourself in their shoes. You're in the first generation of Christianity. Let's pretend we are the disciples. We had just seen something quite impressive. Jesus, die and rise. When I get together with anybody, the mailman, I can't stop talking about this thing. It's all I want to talk about. And anytime we get together, what else is more important? But then a year goes by and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And then we're realizing we're, it's like, there's other stuff we need to, Jesus taught us a lot of stuff, which gets back to, and this, the lights are probably going off for the disciples, like Jesus, he did teach them for three years prior to his death and resurrection, as though there was gonna be millennia of them teaching the faith to the church. So it wasn't just, he, just, he didn't just come grab a few guys, die and rise so he could come back next week. But he actually had all this teaching. So I don't know when exactly they started actually unfolding more of the, the principles of the, or the, the truths of the scripture in an organized way. But like, as you go back and read the church fathers, they're all preaching on the same lectionary, generally, certainly in the Reformation era. So like for me, in my sermon prep, like I try, if Luther wrote on it, I try to read Luther's sermons, but Luther was on what we call the one-year lectionary. Really, everybody was on the one-year lectionary prior to 1965. Who, and, and really, prior to 1965, everybody followed the common lectionary. So there, you can go back and dig up sermons, and they're all kind of following those general themes. When they made the shift to the three-year in 1965, um, the Vatican II, the, the, the council effort to get more scripture out to the church, most of the Protestants jumped on board as well. So, so the Missouri Synod doesn't, didn't like make this stuff up. But they did, there were some like where choices needed to be made, they, they, they did make some slight nuances. So on a given Sunday, if you go to LCMS Church and you tune into your, your, uh, your old church down in Atlanta, for example, they might, they're going to both be in Luke, probably, but maybe a slightly different portion of Luke, right? Good. The bigger question then behind that is, how is it that if I'm preaching on I'm preaching on a particular portion of the scriptures and somebody else might be preaching on something the scriptures like down in Episcopalian, like full-blown liberal Episcopalianism. Um, how, how are they able? Well, let me give a better example. You go to downtown Naperville, St. Peter and St. Paul, one of the most beautiful churches, at least in driving distance for us. Um, right next to it is a Methodist church that's like dripping with rainbow flags. How... How is that possible? And they both have the lectionary. They're both on the three-year lectionary. They both have the same Bible. And what it, so what is it about this Bible that's so hard to understand? And if you, so here I'm driving through Naperville as a non-Christian. And if you, so, so these guys are Christian. Those guys are Christian. They're totally different because I'm seeing always in the news about the Catholics being um, pro-life or anti-abortion and they're anti-gay marriage, and the Methodists are so welcoming and all-inclusive, they can't, Christians can't figure it out. They're obviously, there's no right or wrong. 
obviously they, they, there's no truth there. They're just confused about stuff. You can see how, unfortunately, the way Christendom is being presented to the non-believer, it's, it's, an, easy, it's an easy thing to spit out. So then let's get into the, the why, some of the differences. There is a, there is a, um, this is annoying me. Anybody shoes? Yeah. No idea? Has anybody heard of this? Oh, okay, this is gonna this is gonna be so fun. All right. Is the Bible is the Bible God's word? So if I were to say to you, the Bible contains God's word, would you agree with that? Is is the Bible contains God's word different than saying the Bible is God's word? Yes. What's the difference? Potentially not. But notice how you didn't catch it. So when a church body says, this is, this is the fundamental difference between the ELCA, the other Lutheran church, and Missouri Synod, that simple distinction. Um, and same with the Lutheran confessions, which we'll talk about later. It's, it is God's, so the confessions is true, are, are true, insofar as they are consistent with God's word versus the confessions are true because they are in accord with God's word. So the, the two different subscriptions to the confessions for, the, for a church to say, as Lutherans, we're saying the small catechism is the proper exposition of God's word. And that's what makes us Lutheran. We're saying we believe this about the Lord's word. Somebody else would say, well, I believe it, it, it's a proper exposition of God's word insofar as it doesn't err. Well, where does it err? Well, wherever I think it errs. It becomes subjective immediately, right? So this is, the, this is the higher criticism creep into God's word. Let me back up to uh, the age of um, enlightenment. So post-Reformation, if we're, if we're at the time of Luther in the, let's say, late 1500s, early 1600s, everybody believes in some kind of a spiritual realm. There are a few outlying atheists. Most of them published stuff <laughs> and became the, like the, the foundations of all the heretics that came later. But generally speaking, everybody acknowledged God. It was a, like a, a very faith-focused people. Until we get into the age of enlightenment, when science starts to become God, and, and as science, remember the, the boom of science, all the discoveries that are happening, which by the way, all the early scientists were Christians. But as we keep pushing forward on science until we come up with a guy, go, come up to a guy named Darwin. And in Darwinism, what we see is, what we just summarize today as evolutionism. The, the, this discovery of some tr common traits amongst species that, that develop, seem to develop over time, like between, within a bird species, and there's some commonalities among some animals. And so from that, he deduced that all these species had developed from these other species, from these, and so forth, right? So evolution is that we kind of start with basic primitive molecular organisms, and then over billions and billions of years, because if you, if you remove 
the creator from the picture, you've got trillions of years because the Bible's not a play. So over these trillions of years, things evolved. And how did they evolve? Well, they'd be in a struggle. Talk about this in Bible study earlier. You get twice today. Uh, there's a struggle between the, the weak and the strong. And the strong survived. Natural selection, survival of the fittest, right? And the fit that survived are better because they had like, whatever the example, a little bit longer tail or better eyesight or whatever the, whatever the thing is that, that evolved. And we end up with, so this, there's always this struggle. History is a struggle that pushes forward to get to where we are today. Everything is seen as the struggle. So Marxism, around, floating around the same time, takes that same concept of things in a struggle and applies it to economics. The bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Economic class warfare. That's all Marx taking up the same principles of Darwin, which ultimately came from a guy named, sort of boring with big words, Hegelian, Hegel, Hegelian dialectic. He's the guy that we can blame for all the messes that we're seeing today with critical race theory, transgender confusion, all that kind of stuff comes out of him. Which did not, he's an atheist. He says all history is driven forward by struggles. Things are always in struggle. Everywhere you look, you're going to find an oppressor and an oppressed class, and they're going to be in struggle. That's happening at the university level in Europe in the 1800s. They're teaching Hegelian dialectic, Marxism, Darwinism has, has kind of over, overrun the theological faculty in the upper universities in Europe, which is where this creeps in. This is the merger of Hegelian Marxism view of the world and history with the Bible. In case, in case I'm losing you or boring you to death, let me put it like this. When you go back and look at the Old Testament, doesn't it seem like, like the prophets? Like when you read, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But when, there's a lot of overlap between what's said in Deuteronomy and what's said in Leviticus. I mean, Numbers is like a lot of Numbers. Uh, but but um, Exodus has a lot of common themes, but there seems to be like some, some of the verses, some of the passages, and really some of the books seem to be very prophet-focused, as if the prophets were the main guys. Others, like Leviticus, are very priest-focused, and others are very king-focused. So the kings, the prophets, and the priests are obviously fighting with one another, and all of them have different books kind of giving their perspective of how things are and what is good and evil, right and wrong. Obviously, that's not true, but they bring that interpretation to the scriptures because obviously we know that we did not get created by God in six days because science has taught us that we evolved, right? Since, since we know God didn't create us, we also know that the Bible is is really not a book that's authoritative for what is truth. The Bible is just a cultural narrative or of a particular people. And, the same, and, it, and in many ways, it is. It's not only that, but it is the origin story of the Jewish faith. And, and we would say the Christian faith, all the way back to... But you can go back and read like Canaanite, um, like the Enuma Elish, some early um, Egyptian stuff. You can, you can read people's weird funky creation narratives. Greek mythology has stuff. Like everyone's got like their creation narrative that's, that are always kind of giving a why we came to be the way we are now. 
So there's some weird story about something happening, which is why all of our men have like weird hairlines or whatever it is, right? however, this, however our people came to be. So all the Bible is, is a, is a man-made document, a cultural description of their people. Obviously it's not true. It wasn't trying to be true. No, they would have never said a six-day creation actually happened. They, they wouldn't actually say that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. The point of Jonah wasn't that he was swallowed by a big fish, but it was all symbolic for something else. Um, God creating in six days was just symbolic for God creating in these epochs, um, which we would say are billions of years, really. And when it, God, it's not a personal God like God the Father, but really it's, it's how the universe came to be. We, we, the Bible calls it God, but it's not really a personal God like you and I would know. So all of a sudden we've taken God's word as a source of truth that we would say is inspired and from God. And now we've said, no, no, it's not that. It's just a cultural narrative of a particular people that gives us an opinion of a, of a body of, of people. <coughs> Higher criticism. So we're criticizing the text. That is, we're, we're looking at it critically to determine what is true or more true than others, but we're doing it from a higher plane. We've arrived at a better perspective of the Bible. We're able to, because we know truth. I mean, ultimately, other people and all those thousands of years that came before us are all a bunch of idiots. We have arrived, and necessarily we have, because going back to evolutionism, every year that we, we evolved, previous generations were necessarily inferior. So obviously the Bible is going to be inferior. And obviously we're, we've got a higher view of the Bible. So then we can look at the Bible and say, um, as we look at the Old Testament, we're able to say, this is not we as Lutherans, that the higher critical view would say that all like the miracles, the, the, the six-day creation, um, the flood, the, uh, Jonah, anything that seems, that smells miraculous is obviously not true. In the same way as the story of Achilles or you know, Zeus doing stuff, or whatever, all that kind of stuff in, in, the, in, in other cultural narratives. Except for the New Testament. The first generation of higher critics, higher critics weren't, able, weren't, weren't um, willing to do away with Jesus in the New Testament. So all the Old Testament miracles were suspect, but not the resurrection of Jesus. You gotta have that. Well, but logically... It doesn't take long, one generation, and that's what happened. The students of the first generation, the students come around and say, wait a second, if we're throwing out miracles in the Old Testament because we haven't seen these things and we, ha we, can't, we can't prove these things by walking up to somebody and asking to see a miracle or something, then they're obviously suspect according to our rules of science. So we're looking at the New Testament from a higher plane and throwing out everything that doesn't mesh with our experience. Walking on water, resurrection from the dead. But isn't the Bible still useful if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What could you glean from the Bible if, if we were to just say that the New Testament's a myth, Jesus didn't really happen, could you still do good? We do good with Santa Claus all the time. It's the best way to get your kids to behave in December, right? So, if you're, able to, if you're able to use the Bible in such a way to control people's morals, the first shall be last, right? Be humble, 
um, on and on. Like love your neighbor as yourself. These aren't bad. These are good basic principles that a non-Christian could say, you know, I don't believe in the resurrection, but I kind of like, I like the Christian aura. Like these basic fortune cookies from Jesus, whether or not he existed is irrelevant. These basic teachings are, I want my kids to, to live that way, right? So that's the higher critical move would be a church, the church that's able to look at their theologians who look at the scriptures and pick out what is God's word and what is not God's word according to their own higher plane or their own presuppositions. So the, an easy example to pick on is like the homosexuality one. Today, in today's culture, is it more, according to our culture now, is it more loving to be affirming of someone's personal gender discoveries? <laughs> or, or, or is it more loving to say, no, you're a man because you stand up to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Sorry. Like, which, what's more loving? To affirm. To affirm. So, so Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is all about love and peace and harmony and get along. So that's the, the principle. The main overarching hermeneutic for interpreting the New Testament is love, but it doesn't say what love is. The culture tells us what love is. So now that we know what is generally viewed to be love today, that becomes obviously what Jesus would have wanted us to say. Because <clears throat> when you look at the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament, there are certainly certain things that were specifically targeting an era like, or, or, a, or a particular group of people in a particular place. So like Corinth was dealing with particular problems that Paul is addressing in his letters to, to Corinth. Um, same with Galatia. So there are, Paul's writing specific letters to particular people. There is a specialization of God's word to a, to a place and a time. Well, we just take one step and say, well, the whole New Testament then is, is just as subjectively um, applied. So today, God, um, or today it is it's more loving, according to what Jesus would want us to say and do, it's more loving to be affirming because Jesus wants us to be loving. That's the main thing. That's the main principle there. So that's higher criticism, which basically takes the scriptures and just tosses it out as being God's word, but that rather they would say it contains God's word, which then that's where all the problems enter in. So that's obviously, that's the full the full like far left, we'd say biblical liberals who, who would say all, all the social agendas, all the things that seem to like, they're screaming, like how can, you, how can you say thou shalt not murder, but then also be okay with like killing a baby even after it's born? Like, like how, does, how does that logically line up? Well, because it's more loving, right? And ultimately we're all, we're all okay with killing on some level, Right? We, have, we have military, we have soldiers. So some killing is necessary for the benefit of the group. Right? Survival of the fittest. So if, if it's more loving for me to sacrifice my child so that we can survive better, then shouldn't you be affirming and accepting of that? That's all this new definition. Now that's, that's coming from the far left. Now, before higher criticism even hits the ground, let's go back to the Reformation era. How much time do we got? Nine minutes? 
So what I just described for you is the difference between St. Peter and Paul and then the Methodist church with the flags. That's that difference. But now we've got differences between all like churches that would actually say the Bible is God's word, and yet there's different interpretations there. How do you do that? So we start with it. We start with the Luther problem, um, as the Catholics would say, the the pig and the how they put it. The, when the Pope wanted, when he when he um, sent the, the the papal bull out to excommunicate Luther and have him killed, he's like Luther's like a a, a, a warthog that's that's um what do you call it the, the guy with the husk the wild pigs. Wild boar. He's a wild boar in the king's, in the Lord's garden, and he's destroying it. And so he needs to be stopped. That was how Luther was described. And it all came down to tr- trying to say God's word has to be authoritative over against the church. Now, that's a hard move. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to some of the, the, my Catholic friends who, who disagree on this, on this point. But it's all based on the premise that human, humans are sinful. And so when the church is forming like um, interpret, interpretive rules or, or setting, setting rules of, that stand over the scriptures, that's a problem because it's saying that they, they have a, they're, they're sitting in a position that, that is without sin and can then, it's almost higher, can look down at the scriptures and form rules about the Bible. Versus being subject to the Bible. I mean, I'd say the Catholic Church can still make, make rules and stuff like that, but it was unwilling to say that it was subject to the Scriptures, but rather equal to the Scriptures. And the logic there would be, ultimately, the Bible does need to be interpreted. So the, it's the church who is the primary interpreter of the Bible, not you. So you don't even need a Bible. We'll tell you what you need to know. And that's kind of the Reformation. So people who didn't even have the Bible in some countries in their own language, depending on the language that they spoke, which is why when Luther translated the Bible into German, like that was a shocking thing. And everybody who translated it into their common tongue, it was like heretical in the first, in the first wave of translations because everybody was like, can we do this? Are we able to read it on our own and interpret it on our own, right? And Luther would say, yeah. So the Bible is going to do, it's God's word, it's living and active, it's, it's, and it's clear. Where, where the Bible seems to not be clear, the problem is in us, not in it. So, then that, so what, that, what that did is it cracked the door open from the church being the sole definer of what the Bible meant. And it, it had been happening, but everybody who blew the whistle on that foul got burned at the stake before they could get it out. Fortunately, like 50 years before Luther hit the ground, the Gutenberg press was invented. And Luther happened to be in a part of Germany where he was protected by the, he was working at, the, at a university that was protected by a particular prince who was related to the emperor and was able to kind of like keep the emperor from killing Luther long enough. It also helped the Muslims were actually closing in. If you remember back in your like Crusades era stuff, like later Crusades, but the Muslims are like sweeping through Europe and they're knocking on Germany's door. And so they needed Germany to be a united front against the Turks. So the emperor's like, I don't care about you guys arguing about like whether or not the Bible is authoritative. They're going to kill us all. You guys just get along. So the emperor didn't step in like he had historically, which allowed time for Gutenberg's presses to crank out all this stuff. And that's, we, we, Unfortunately, we see the problem today with all the, how many blogs do you, 
how many email blasts do you get where you're like, is this legit? How many things do I read? I have so many different opinions. By the time of Luther, you're getting some really clean, so not only translations of scripture, but critiques of some abuses within the Catholic Church, inconsistencies with the scripture. Most importantly, inconsistencies amongst church fathers about the Bible. Whereas like St. Augustine had disagreed with other historic saints in the church. So the, the fathers, the church itself was disagreeing with itself, which shows that ah, that's just more evidence that the church can err in the Bible as the authority. So he cracks the door on, on the Bible being solely interpreted by the church alone. And then from that, you just start spinning out all the, the roots of all the other denominations that we know. John Calvin, um, kind of in the, in the, in the background of Presbyterianism, Calvinism, some branches of Baptistism, the Baptists. Um, you get obviously Luther, and then within Luther, there's all these little strains of, of Lutheranism. Because after Luther, a lot of guys would say Luther was great on the gospel, but he, wasn't, he didn't go far enough on exhorting us to good works. So, like John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, they, they wanted to get a better method of how to do this Christian life. How can I actually do it better? Luther is all about using the law to convict us and the gospel to show sin. The Methodists want a method. And so we get the origins of the Methodist church. And then today you get all these like hodgepodges of things together. But those are the main voices in, at least in our experiences of, of uh, Christian denominations in America today. Obviously hundreds of different smaller sects Breakoffs, even within Lutheranism, there's lots of different groups. I think I might have a later class where I talk about some of the differences between. I mean, the ELCA is the obviously the big one. There's Our Savior downtown and uh, Good Shepherd uh, right across the way here, and that their Good Shepherd used to be a more conservative branch within ELCA, and then they ended up merging with ELCA. Anyway, how you doing? I threw a lot at you, a lot at you, my apologies. Um, but I think the, the, why, the why question on how we got here is important. And so when you've got these different teachers arriving at different conclusions for different reasons, like the Lutheran critique would be human reason has stepped in place of scripture to answer questions that the scripture doesn't answer. So for example, um, predestination. This would, be, this would be picking on John Calvin. Predestination is the teaching that, that God has predestined those who are elect from before the foundation of the world. God, his elect, he has always known. He has chosen them, predestined. Their destin destiny is predetermined. Because the Bible is clear about that. He talks, the New Testament talks about God's elect chosen before the foundation of the earth. What the Bible does not say is that God damned anyone prior. It only is toward salvation. Well, logically though, if God's predestining some people to heaven, he's obviously also predestining them to hell. And the Bible just doesn't say that. That's a logical jump. And the answer, I mean, the Lutheran answer to, so how is that logically even possible? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the reason why we even bother speaking the gospel. We don't know who's elect and who isn't. Our job is to s speak the word, sow the seed, cast the net, 
God brings his elect who he knows. We don't know. But the oper- if, the modus op- if, the, uh, if the operating principle is I'm predestined to heaven or hell and there's nothing I can do about it, what's the point? Why bother trying? Well, then they would say, well, if, you, if you're part of the elect, then your life is going to look like the elect. So you're pointed back to yourself and saying, does my life look like the elect? Am I good enough? And what, do, what is the only measure God gives me to measure if I'm good or bad? The Ten Commandments, the law. And the law's job is always to accuse. That's the primary purpose. The law shows us our sin. So here I am trying to decide if I'm elect or not. And the only way I can decide is, the only way I can have the comfort of knowing that I'm elect is my life looks like I'm elect. And I take up the law to measure myself. And if I'm doing it right, the law is always going to show me that I'm not doing enough. I haven't loved my neighbor enough. I haven't loved him sincerely enough. If I thought I've loved this neighbor enough, there's more neighbors. You can't keep it. And so there's only despair down that road. It's because logic has, human logic has entered in as a, uh, what's the word? Magisterial. Magisterial, that is like a kingly role over the Bible. We're all about reason. We want to use a reason interpreting the scripture, but it's always got to be a ministerial that is a servant to under the Bible. So we're never going to trump the scriptures or, or, or make jumps that the scriptures don't make. So like when the Bible says, baptism now saves you. What we, what we think that Paul meant or Peter meant when he said that in 1 Peter 3 was that baptism saves you. Yeah, but come on. I thought the cross saves you. Well, yeah, the cross does save you. It delivers or the baptism delivers the cross to us. But I'm not going to try to like logic. Oh, but, but when it comes to the sacrament, this is my body. This is my blood. What Jesus meant was it represents my body and blood because obviously it wouldn't be his body. That's a logical jump. It's not what Jesus said. And there you see, get all these divisions. Um, and we'll talk, we can talk more about those. And, and maybe I didn't leave you any time for particular individualized questions. I'm not a specialist on other people's denominations because frankly, I don't care. I just need to be good at my own. Uh, but so my, the, the part of the j- job here in this class is to continue to wrestle with the presuppositions that you're currently holding. If you're coming from a different church body or questions that have kind of emerged and how does that mesh with what you're hearing and learning here? And as questions come bubble up, you just got to jump in and stop me because I don't know how to stop talking. When I say like, are there any questions? Inside my brain goes, one, two, three. No questions. Okay, we're gone. So you got to stop me. Uh, we're at time. One last, one last shot. Any questions for you guys? All right, boy. It's, uh, so, and I know Good Shepherd, they had about like half grape juice, half wine for me. Uh, what's the justification for grape juice? I know some people say that the fermentation um, was that the wine that Jesus had was non-alcoholic? Those people are not smart people. So you don't have pasteurization at the time of Jesus. So as soon as you have grape juice, fermentation has begun. It's just the way, it's what wine does. You can't stop it from fermenting. Um, and so the grape, the skins of the grape actually have yeast on them. So you, if you want to make grape, I mean... I don't know what you buy from Costco, but generally, especially at their time, you're pulling, you're pulling uh, 
grapes off the trees and throw them in a barrel and they're just going to ferment, right? Now, how much alcohol was in it? Obviously, they weren't, if, they, if they indeed weren't trying to make it strong alcohol, then there would have been young grape juice. Because even the, within the New Testament, it's talking about grape, or, uh, the skins of, of the grape juice or the skins of the wine, wine skins, that would expand. Why is it expanding? Fermentation that's taking place, right? Also, when we see the abuse of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, the abuse that Paul is after is that they were getting drunk. Last time I checked, you get drunk on wine and not grape juice, you get diabetes from grape juice. So in our context today, um, so the Baptist would say, if alcohol is sinful, which the Bible doesn't say that it is, but if you're operating with the presupposition that alcohol is sinful, then obviously Jesus wouldn't be turning water into wine at a wedding. It would mince grape juice. He's obviously not going to be using wine in the Lord's Supper because they wouldn't have had wine. or What? It's, they're having the Passover. There was wine. There was always wine for them. In fact, it was more, it was more sanitary to, have, to be drinking wine because the alcohol would actually kill bacteria, right? So uh, for us, for people who have concerns about alcohol, like some people, alcoholics in their family and so forth, we actually have in the, in, in the middle of our individual tray, per every individual tray has like two cups with, with grape juice that we've actually used an eyedropper and put wine in. So it's still, it's still wine. But if we gave you just an, an eyedropper of wine, you'd be like, <laughs> did I get anything? So we, so we put the eyedropper into the grape juice because we do have some people with some concerns, like uh, some pancreas stuff, um, like some health, some severe health stuff. My, I'm more of a fan of just take the chalice and take a tiny, tiny sip if that's what you want. Um, some people in tink, so we take the bread and, and dip it in the wine. That's not, that's not my preferred practice because Jesus said take drink, not take dip. That's the Doritos guys who say that, or the whoever, Tostitos. Um, so... But you're with, we're within freedom, right? It's about what, what God's giving us and the gift. But it does, it is wine because we know they're getting drunk on it. Does that answer your question yeah. at all? Interesting question. I'm always, I'm always thinking, why would you ask this question? It was a big deal in Mississippi. I grew up with Baptists. And um, so they were always fighting about whether or not it was actually wine. I'm like, what? Well, of course it was wine. Not only there, but Jesus turned water into wine and so forth. All right. Uh, for next week, I'll be looking at the Ten Commandments, Law and Gospel and the Ten Commandments, Confession, Absolution, and the Office of the Keys. So we got a full plate for us next week. And that's on Wednesday again. We'll meet in here again. If you don't have a congregation at prayer, uh, you can take one of those and pass it around. The same ones from Sunday. But we, we printed like 50 too many, so... Give, just pretend that you're going to use it. And I'm going to, we can stand and we'll close with Luther's evening prayer on the back of the handout there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen.
All right, thanks. If you had more questions, I'll stick around since I talk so much.